Well, I think that was such a blessing and such great worship, right? We could pronounce the benediction and go home fully blessed. Don't count on that. We got more to do here. Hey, good morning, Crossroads. What a great Lord's Day. And for all you Michigan fans, no, I'm not going to go there. Like, <laughs> Just remember, Jesus is on the throne and he wins, right? He's the king, so... I know it doesn't make any of you Michigan guys feel better, but anyway. So, I've gotten a lot of good advice in my life. Actually, I've needed a lot of good advice in my life. But I think if I were to make a short list of the best advice, on top of the list, or at least near the top, would be this. Remember sitting on the front porch of a lodge way up in the Adirondack Mountains overlooking this beautiful lake. And I was sitting next to my friend and we were just casually chatting. And in the course of our conversation, he said this to me. He said, Joe, I have come to realize that my life is not made by the dreams that I dream, but by the choices that I make. I walked off the porch thinking that was an important statement. As I lived through my life, it was no longer important, it was profound. Because choices are determinative. They determine the direction of our lives. And sometimes it's not those big choices, it's just a whole sequence of the little choices. Unfortunately, they're often unretractable and unreversible. So when I was a kid, I had a train set up in the attic of, my, of where we lived, uh, Lionel 007. Do I have a witness? Don't leave me up here alone. Come on, like, like, and it was an elaborate setup, and I've had an engine and cars, and I had my little transformer, and I could move that fast, I could move it slow, but I had a whole bunch of switch tracks. And I could just press a button and all of a sudden the train would veer off here and then another switch track and it would veer off here and it set the whole direction. Choices are like the switch tracks of your life. So given how important they are, I'm not surprised that God is interested in the choices that you make. In fact, given the fact that he's cheering for you, he wants to move you to excellent choices. And that's exactly what the prayer of Paul talks about this morning. For those of you who have been here through this series, we're looking at the prayers of Paul. And this morning, we get to go to Philippians chapter 1, if you take your Bibles and open it up. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, but I remember a few years ago when I had the joy of serving here, um, I forgot to ask people to stand up, and I started reading the scripture, and some annoying lady way in the back yelled out, we stand up when we read the Bible at Crossroads, so we're going to stand up. Philippians chapter 1. And as we read it, I'll make a few comments. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, I have to stop there. We live in a structured, stratified world where people with power and authority are on the top. The rest of us are commoners. The rest of us are servants. The rest of us are followers. I'm struck here that Paul, the leading apostle of that day, does not pull the power level, but he calls himself a servant. 
and to all the other brothers and sisters, he claims them as saints. This is the track of authentic Christianity, that I am here to serve, and I value the worth of others and call them saints. So if you ever get in that power thing, just remember the servant-saint perspective. That's what authentic Christianity is all about. It's another sermon, so let's keep reading. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's an amazing statement. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. How many of you are aware that you're making memories in other people's lives? And one of the great gifts is to fill their memory bank with memories that are good and wonderful so that when they think about you, they think about you with joy. You know, life is fragile. I think, you know, when I get up in the morning and Marty and I say goodbye and I walk out the door, I don't know if I'm coming back at the end of the day. None of us have those kind of guarantees. But what I want to be sure about is if I don't come back, that somehow my life has filled her memory bank with good memories. That's what the Philippians did for Paul. I think it's very special. And I am sure of this. Oh, he said, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, at the very first day, Paul heard the Macedonian call, if you remember, to go to Macedonia, and that's where Philippi was, and he went to Philippi. He went down to the, where the Jews prayed by the river. He met Lydia, led Lydia to the Lord and her whole household, and immediately she started partnering. See, she said, come in, stay at our place. Wealthy Lydia was supporting his ministry. And now the church at Philippi, Paul's in prison in Rome, are sending Epaphroditus with gifts to Paul. So here they're participating with him. And I think a lot of times, you know, I can't do what some people do in ministry. But what I can do is partner with them. I can pray for them. I can write a check for them to carry out their gifts. The joy of partnering in the fellowship of the gospel. That's also another sermon, so keep reading. <laughs> and I'm sure of this, that he who has begun a good... I'd like to talk about this too, but we've got to move here. <laughs> I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confidence in the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And this is my prayer. So now we get to the prayer of Paul to the church and the believers at Philippi. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Here's the key phrase so that you might put to test that which is excellent. What he's saying here is test out excellent choices. Choose what is excellent. Make that the priority of your life because the outcome of that is that you will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts 
will be fully acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul welcomes then them to make excellent choices, like put to test that which is excellent. I think when I think about excellent choices and the whole aspect of choices, there's a whole continuum of them, right? Like way over here are horrible choices. Like, I mean, horrible choices. And then there's bad choices. And I'm aware this morning as we go through this that some of you sit here with a life totally messed up because of a string of bad choices in your life. It's my prayer that this morning you'll be lifted out of that sludge and be delivered to a whole new way to live out your life. And that's my prayer. Not only bad choices, there's just average choices. That's like living in a swamp of mediocrity, right? Then there are good choices. But God wants you to move all the way across that continuum to the... Come on. You're not the nine o'clock service, okay? Like, we're, we've all coffeeed up to the excellent choices. And that's where he aims us, and that's where his prayer aims us. Now, I think you need to know that you'll have a lot of, a lot of whispers from the dark side about what to put to test in your life. You'll have whispers, here's a choice. You could lie and get out of this, and nobody will know. Here's a choice. You could just smoke a little pot with your friends. It's not a big deal. There's no problem with this. Here's a choice. You could cheat at work and you'll, be, you'll get it. And here's a choice. You could live a life in, in sex out of bounds. It'll bring you so much pleasure. It just, you know, the list is long of the whispers from the darkness about your choices. We need to listen to the call of Christ in our lives to move, to know that that's, that's the destructive voice in our lives, to move to the excellent choice. Now, one thing about moving to the excellent choice that is important is that it won't always be easy. Personally, this prayer sounds really good to me. I'd like to live a life with excellent choices. But walking out of here and being Monday morning, I'm, I'm going to find out that the excellent choices are challenging and they're hard. I may be all alone. All of my friends may be making other kinds of choices and looking at me like, what's wrong with you? An excellent choice might leave you all alone. An excellent choice might go against your instincts. For sure, some excellent choices go against your desires, uh, go against your emotions. So then it's a little more complex here. Like, really, do I really want to pay the price for excellent choices? And what the great thing in this text is that Paul goes on to tell us that the pain is worth the gain. The juice is worth the squeeze. Because he said, if you make excellent choices, three great things happen to your life. Now, grammatically, this text runs like dominoes. Does anybody play dominoes? Do we have any domino people here? Does anybody know what dominoes are? (laughs) Does anybody know like how to play dominoes the right way? Like put them all up on an end and make a snake that goes across your table? 
and then hit one and they all fall down, right? Well, grammatically, if you make excellent choices, this text tells us there are three result clauses. Automatically, these things happen to your life. So you hit the excellent choice and ding, 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 three great things happen to your life. It's not like you get up in the morning and say, I want to manufacture one of those. Don't do that. Just make an excellent choice. That's what happens. And the first one in the text, you will notice, is that if you make an excellent choice, the text tells us, in fact, we should look at it so you don't think I'm making it up here, that you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. To be pure. Actually, the Greek here means to be cleansed, to be washed, to have the shame and the guilt of my life washed away, and to be internally pure, not haunted by the hypocrisy of my life, not haunted by will somebody catch me, not haunted with why can't I get away from get away from this, not haunted by all those things, not needing to wear earbuds all day long with music in my ears so that I can forget about the the bankruptcy and the, the sorrow of my soul. But Jesus died on the cross to wash us with his blood and to make us pure. It's that wonderful sense of being pure before him. And one thing I like about not just the joy of thinking that excellent choices will make me pure, but it's interesting that it says we'll be pure and blameless. That means nobody's pointing the finger at at us. We don't live in blame. But the great thing about this text, you're pure and blameless for the coming of Christ. I don't think we think this about our Christianity very often, but the journey, part of the journey is preparing to meet him and to prepare to meet him pure and blameless, instead of having, a, to, having to drag us out of the sludge of all of our fallenness, we present ourselves to him. It's, it's kind of like, uh, I'm reminded here, First John chapter three, that the Christ will be coming and we will see him and we will be like him as he is. And then the text says, everybody who has this hope purifies themselves in preparation to meet the king. And I wonder here if John didn't have in the background the sense of the Jewish pattern of marriage. Maybe best explained by John 14, uh, where the bride would prepare herself in purity for her husband. Um, And maybe I ought to go to John 14 for a second. You remember where Christ said, uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will... Come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That was a clear picture of the way the Jewish marriage system went. Um, The guy who wanted the father's daughter would go to the father. They'd share a cup of wine, write a contract. And then the Jewish bridegroom would go home. And he would prepare an apartment for him and his soon-to-be wife. And interestingly enough, the bride who was now waiting for him to come back for her had no clue when he would come. In fact, she would just spend time. <laughs> I remember one time I was preaching this, and you know, so many times you'd like to have the words back, right? So I, I meant to say she would spend the time preparing her trousseau, 
which is like her wardrobe and everything, except I said she would prepare, spend the time preparing her torso. <laughs> oh, to have that back, you know, like. <laughs> and then the day would come as she was ready He would leave his father's house through the town and his friends would start joining him like in a parade and they would shout ahead so she'd be ready. The bridegroom's coming. Think 1 Thessalonians 5 here. The bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom's coming. And she was ready and she was prepared. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about in this text. That we are awaiting the day of our bridegroom and we want to be pure and blameless the joy of thinking of presenting ourselves to him like that. And that all comes automatically when your life is characterized by excellent choices. The second automatic thing that happens, the second gain in the midst of the challenge of excellent choices, it says you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which is equal to Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, which are... A choir of scripture, how wonderful is that, you know? All of those wonderful characters. I don't know if someone, if you could write a profile of your life, like, okay, this is the kind of person I would like to be. I would think that my list is the fruit of the spirits. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. I mean, what what a life is that? I mean, how many of you would like a husband like that? Don't say out loud, please. How many of you would like a wife like that, kids like that, friends like that? I mean, it's just the perfect picture of the best kind of life. Or you can do the opposite. Instead of fruit of the Spirit being lovely, it's an unloving person. Joy knows a grumpy person. No, patient, no, it's an impatient person. Well, is that, I, don't know, I don't know what you're looking for, but I'll take the fruits of righteousness. And when you make excellent choices, That's the gift that God gives to you. And thirdly, the third benefit of excellent choices in the text is that you will live to the praise and glory of God. I don't know if you know that our redemptive purpose is that we live to glorify God, which ought to get us out of this world of living to glorify ourselves. How sad is that? How lame is that? But to glorify God, so what does that mean? To glorify God literally means that we bring glory to him because we show the world what he is like through our lives. Genesis, we were created in the image of God. We are to look like God. We are to act like God. We are to have God's attitudes. We are his image bearers. And in a world that doesn't want to have anything to do with our God, in a world that doesn't know anything about our God, we have the privilege of making God visible, this invisible God, of making him visible by reflecting his character, reflecting his attitudes, showing our world what it means to love others as God loves us, showing the world acts of mercy, showing our world acts of grace, showing our world forgiveness, showing our world justice. I mean, just go down the phenomenal characteristics of God and it's our privilege to live out his glory and show this world what an invisible God really looks like to the glory and praise of his name, not our own. 
You can understand it like this. Years ago, uh, when my son Matt, who's now your missions pastor, and they all broke out in applause. Like, <laughs> that's when I was just a little kid. I was asked to speak at a banquet, and I remember it was one of those banquets where the head table is like raised up and all the muckety-mucks are sitting up at the head table. And he asked, you know, bring, bring your family. So Marty and I were both there, and little Matt, he was the only kid that was available that night, and he came with us, and he's sitting down there. I'm sit- seated right next to the big shot guy who was name tag John something. And so we were eating, and after the me- oh, I need to tell you something here so you understand all of this, parenthetically, okay? Uh, like, I'm a people person, which I think irritates a lot of you who aren't people persons, uh, and it certainly irritated my kids when we'd go to restaurants. Like, so I just have this great conversation with the server, right? Like, hi, how are you? Hi, Barbara, I'm Joe, and these are my kids. This is Matt, and this is Joe, this is Libby, this is my good wife, Marty. Where do you, are you in college? What are you doing like? My kids go, Dad, you're such an embarrassment to us. Please, don't, don't do that. <laughs> and so Matt jumps off the after dinner, before the program starts, little Matt jumps off the chair, comes behind Marty, and lands on my lap. No sooner did he land on my lap than he looked at this big shot guy, read his name tag, John, and threw out his little hand and said, Hi, John, I'm Matt. I'm like, he's a chip off the old block, right? So glorifying God is that we are chips off the divine block. We show this world what God is like. What a privilege. And so I just want to ask you, Who in this room would not want these three gifts from God in their lives? Who in this room would not want to have, as the text tells us, that we are pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that we are filled with the fruits of righteousness to the glory and praise of God? Who would not want that? And so the text tells us, hit that domino, excellent choice, and these three things will begin to grow in your lives. And I welcome you to the privilege. Now, part of the challenge will be, okay, so how do I know what the excellent choice is, right? <laughs> You're wringing your hands like, what is the excellent choice? Like, oh, I don't know what the... So the text helps us back to domino world again, actually, The excellent choice is a direct result of everything that happens in verse 9. The Greek grammar are that these three things in verse 9 happen. You automatically make excellent choices. And maybe we ought to talk about where excellent choices don't come from, just to make things clear. First of all, excellent choices do not come from your instincts. I don't know about you, but I'm well aware of my fallenness. We're all fallen. We're all broken. And I learned a long time ago that my first instincts are almost always wrong and often destructive. If you offend me, my first instinct is not to forgive you and love you back or to bless you because you've cursed me. That's not my first instinct. Uh, You don't make excellent choices by saying, you know what, I just want to be me. Just let me be me. (laughs) Given how fallen we are, I can't think of a scarier thought 
than just being me. And it's not from your emotions. Oftentimes our choices are made out of an emotional base. I probably shouldn't tell you this. You lose all confidence in any of the rest of the sermon, but I'm going to go ahead with this anyway. So before we moved to Michigan, although as soon as we got here, they told us, no, 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 West Michigan is where you live. So as soon as we got to West Michigan, um, we came from Chicago, and I served at the Moody Bible Institute, which was in downtown Chicago. And so I would commute in on the freeway early every morning. And this one morning, I've got the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Remember CD things and you, you know, where you put the little tape into your car? You know, and they're singing. I've got it up full blast, just me and the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You know, this moving worship temple down the highway. I'm singing along with them like, whoa, we love Jesus. And we get in, I got into downtown where it's a little more traffic-y. Pulled up to a red light. And there was a taxi at the red light facing me. And I noticed that he had his wheels turned and was inching forward against the red light which made it clear that he was going to make an attempt to get through that intersection before I did. (laughs) Little road rage here, but let me continue, okay? So sure enough, the light turns green, and he slams his accelerator, accelerates, and he was actually making a U-turn. He missed the front fender of my car like by two inches, and we end up at at the red light next to each other. So I have a choice to make here. So as a Christian, I didn't have enough gestures to use, if you know what I mean. So all I could do is go like, what are you doing? And it felt so good. Emotionally, it felt so good. Until I started driving through, and then it actually started to feel pretty horrible. Actually, I had this out-of-body experience like stole. Was that you? Really? Well, yeah, it really was, unfortunately. And then I'm thinking, like, what happens if he's going to Moody Bible Institute, too? Like, (laughs) what happens if I pull into the president's spot and he pulls in right next to me? Like, so don't, don't make choices by your emotions. It's not a good thing. So what is it, then? that will drive you to excellent choices. No more hand-wringing. The text makes it clear. Three commitments in your life. You you do these commitments, and it will automatically drive you to the excellent choice. Domino grammar again. Number one, notice what it says, that your love, verse 9, may abound yet more and more. This is a growing, abounding love. There are several words in the, in the Greek language for love, as you probably know. Phileo, which is brotherly love. Kind of how you feel about your brothers and sisters after you're 25. There's eros, sensual love. And then there's agape, which is the word that is used here. The Greek word agape 
is a love that loves regardless. It's not, so if you love me, okay, now I'm going to love you back. It's never a response. It's, a, it's an energy love that comes out regardless. It's relentless. It loves no matter what. It is always there. And it is a love, listen carefully, that meets the needs of others. It is an others-oriented love, which makes this very interesting to me. Most of my choices are based on what's best for, guess who? Me. Is there a witness? Right. Almost all of our choices are based on what's best for me. That's never an excellent choice. Agape love cares about the needs and interests of others and loves not best for me, but what's best for them. What's best for my spouse? What's best for my kids? What's best for my company? What's best for my friends? What's best for others, not for me? That's what true love is. And I'm taken, by the way, my head goes all the way to Matthew 22, where this uh, Pharisaical lawyer, the lawyer of the Pharisees, wants to trip Jesus up with a trick question, embarrassment in front of the crowd. And they had like 635 rules for all you rule keepers. It was a day in heaven, for us non-rule keepers are, you know, like, don't. so Christ has to say what the greatest one is. He goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, and it was this, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. Then he added one, which is the troubling one, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. So what that tells me that excellent choices are driven when I make a choice loving God that loves God, that's pleasing to him, that's in the lane of his righteousness, that's in in the lane of his love, of how he would love. So it's this wonderful vertical decision-making process. Lord, I just ask, I need to ask you, what would please you in this situation? How can I stay in your lane And then the second part is this horizontal thing. How do I love my neighbor? So who's your neighbor? You're saying it's the guy next door, right? Well, it is the guy next door, but in Hebrew, in in Old Testament sense, the word neighbor meant anybody that crosses your path. So actually, your neighbor is, um, you're kind of late for where you're going and you pull up to a red light, and the guy in front of you is texting. It turns green. He's still texting. He's texting all the way to yellow. Then he realizes it, gets through the intersection, and you have to stop at the red light. That guy's your neighbor. How you love him, I have no clue. I can tell you what you don't do. You don't pull up next to him at the next light and go like, what are you doing, right? So you at least don't do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes Marty calls me and says, hey, we need a loaf of bread. And maybe I'm late for dinner. I'm really in a big hurry. So I stop at the grocery store and get a loaf of bread. And I get to get in the, the line. 12 items or less line to fly through. And there's a guy in front of me who's got 17 items. Uh, Do you know how I knew there were 17 items? I counted them. (laughs) He's my neighbor. 
Who knows, maybe he's late too. How do you love him? Say, hey dude, you want me to bag your groceries for you? I mean, maybe that's, I don't know. <laughs> but I just want you to know, these are all the neighbor things, right? But those are rare. What about, you know, your neighbor is your wife, your neighbor is your husband, your neighbor is your kids, your neighbors, all those intimate relationships around you. How can you reach out and meet their needs? How can you say no to what's best for you and say yes to what's best for them? And these are daily choices. These aren't those big like once a month choices or once a career choices. These are these daily choices that you live to please God and you live to love others who are around you and you never once ask in a choice, what's best for me? Because guess what? What's best for them in the end will be what's best for you. Count on it. I learned this a long time ago in our marriage relationship. Uh, I grew up in a home that uh, was a non-pet family. Actually, my mother had a canary, but you never bond to a bird, right? So basically, a non-pet family. So I grew up thinking, dogs, dogs, who needs dogs? Dogs are for people who can't make it with humanity, who need props from the animal kingdom, right? Like... <laughs> so Marty and I got married, and one of the first things she said, Joe, let's get a dog. I'm going, dog, who needs dogs? Dogs are for people who can't make it with humanity, who need props. That was not a good thing. Because she grew up in a pet family. She had a black lab by the name of Trudy that she loved, and Trudy loved her. You know, if all of her friends gave her a hard time at school, guess who was on the front porch wagging her tail, welcoming Marty home? says, Trudy. So I thought, what's the excellent? I didn't think this because I didn't know this text back then, but this is kind of the way it went. Like, okay, like, so I got to make a choice here, right? So the excellent, what would God love to me? my needs. Marty has needs. It's not what's best for me. And so we bought a dog. That's how I loved her. I walked the thing. <laughs> Sometimes I fed the thing. And actually, I grew to really love that. The longer I was within, with, in ministry with people, the more I loved that dog. <laughs> But it's that kind of love, that agape love, that drives you to the excellent choice. But not just love, because sometimes love can be misdirected. So there's a second reality here that Paul calls us to, and that is knowledge. So if I can go back to our early marriage again, one more thing. Uh, Marty and I, we were in seminary, we were flat broke, just flat, I mean, we had Every month, we had way too much month left at the end of the money, if you know what I mean. Just flat broke. I remember driving back to our apartment one day, went by this florist, and the big sign says, take flowers to your main squeeze. And I, just, and I get to that, yeah, right. I want you to know there was no secondary squeeze in my life. You know, she was the only squeeze, but nevertheless, she just wasn't the main squeeze. 
So I went in, I bought a dozen roses. She's gonna swoon like, oh, thank you, Joe, you love me so much. And I walked in with, you know, the flowers behind your back, a little trick, right? I go, hey, Marty, babes, I love you so much. Handed her the flowers. She was very gracious, sniffed them, looked at them, well, they're pretty. But it wasn't, she didn't swoon. And so she walked to the kitchen to put them in some water. And I followed her out there and I'm going like, oh, did you, yeah, I think they're really pretty. Thanks a lot, Joe. But I just have a question. How much did these cost? (laughs) Which in her mind, of course, of course, of course, was the key issue. So my love was so misdirected I needed a little knowledge about what was right. And so God calls us to knowledge. And I just want you to know there will be a lot of of whispering in your ears about planet-side knowledge, dark-side knowledge. I'm here to tell you it's all fake news. You got to stop listening to that. And consistently in Scripture, knowledge is always about the Word of God, that it is true and that it is right. And so as you're committed to love and you're trying to make this choice, you run to scripture. Does scripture have anything to say about this? Is there any knowledge from God about this? And it's full of this knowledge about your money, how not to be greedy, how to be generous. There's knowledge about your enemies. You know, I'm just tell you, sometimes this is gonna be tough because It grates against our instincts. It grates against our emotions, but it's right. You know, brace yourself. Jesus said, you've heard it said you should love your friends and hate your enemies. This is knowledge from Christ. And uh, that was street talk, like I don't get mad, I just get even. He said, but I say unto you, here comes the truth. Here comes real knowledge. I say unto you, you should love your enemies. You should bless those who curse you. You should pray for those who despitefully use you. Well, why would I do that? So that you can be like your father who is in heaven. Is anybody in the house today really glad that God loved his enemies? Seriously. So we do these things so we can be like our father who is in heaven. He gives us knowledge about being a husband. Gives us knowledge about being a wife. He gives us knowledge about being parents. He gives us knowledge. There is knowledge in this wonderful book for any decision and choice that you are making. And we, he welcomes you to, the, to, to be full of this love. But then the love is knowledge, is managed by the knowledge that you have. My mind runs to Psalm chapter 1. I love this psalm. Blessed is the person. Kind of blessed, like we're talking about the blessing of these three outcomes of excellent choices. Blessed is the person who doesn't follow the advice of the ungodly, the fake news that's out there, but rather they delight in the law of the Lord. And some of the things you'll get in a book are God's rules. And I think we resist rules, don't we? Like, I don't want people telling me what to do. Well, get a biblical life. Get over that. That's a whisper from the darkness. You need to know that his rules are for your good. He loves you. So it says, delight in the law of the Lord. And this word delight in Hebrew is so wonderful. It's it's the word to be mentally and emotionally preoccupied with the wonderful word of God. His liberating, freeing laws for your life. 
If you think about what the life, what do you think about the Bible? It's a duty, I have to read it. To be a good Christian, I have to carry, I don't know. He said, delight in it. So the word delight literally means, as I mentioned, mentally and emotionally preoccupied. It's kind of like maybe some of you ladies at some time in junior high or high school had your eye on Bob, right? Like, whoa, there's Bob again. Like, why doesn't Bob look at me? Why doesn't he talk to me? You get your friends talking to Bob like, oh, Bob, he doesn't care about And then one day the phone rings. Hi, Barbara, this is Bob. Uh, Hi, Bob. And he says, you know, there's this big thing at school on Tuesday night. Can I pick you up? How about if we go together? Yeah, I'm available. <laughs> and you hang the phone up and then you just go back to life as usual, right? Wrong. I mean, you are mentally and emotionally preoccupied with Tuesday night and Bob. That's all you think about. You go to school the next morning, your first class is the best class you ever. You sit on the front row, you sing it, not this day. You're like, your eyes are totally glazed over, drawing hearts on your notebook like me and Bob. Like arrow through the heart, drops of blood coming down like me and Bob. That's what it means to delight, to be taken with. I welcome you. Stop the bad news from the darkness. Be taken with the word of God. He loves you. He's got a way for you to live. He has a way to manage your choices as you love other people. Welcome to the word of God and that knowledge. And then there's a third thing. So there's a combo of three. That love, knowledge, and discernment. That's wisdom. That's how you take, okay, I want to do the loving thing here. I've got some knowledge from the word of God. The discernment is, how do I apply it? Okay, what should I really do here? This is the wisdom word. God doesn't want any of us just to be smart. You have to be wise. It's the next step forward. Wisdom basically is taking everything you know, all the facts, and putting them together in meaningful action. It's kind of like tomatoes. Seriously. How many of you know a tomato is a fruit? I didn't know that till like three or four years ago. Like, really? I'm watching Veggie Tales, right? And <laughs> so Bob the tomatoes in Veggie Tales. How did he? If he's a fruit, how did he get in Veggie Tales? Like, <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. But a tomato is a fruit. So that's the fact. Wisdom saves you from the disaster of putting it in a fruit salad. That's what wisdom does. It's how to bring all that you know and meaningful, apply, it, apply it meaningfully to your life. And I, I love what the proverb says. Wisdom is better than silver or gold. It's so valuable. Uh, and I love what Colossians says, chapter 1, verse 2, verse 3, that in Christ dwells all the treasures of wisdom. If you want to know how to put your life together, read Jesus. He has all the treasures of wisdom. And the good thing about it is that you can have it. James chapter 1 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him pray. Pray, and God will give you wisdom. And I like this a lot. And he gives it generously. And he will not make you ashamed. 
It's like, here you come again. You're always asking for wisdom. Why are you back here again? He'll never make you ashamed. He'll give it to you generously. And Scripture tells us that there's a wisdom in a multitude of counselors. How do I find wisdom? I pray for it. And then I seek, you know, I call a friend. I've got this situation. I'm going to make this choice. Help me here. I need some wisdom. It's exactly how to put it all together. And when you have this love, knowledge, and wisdom all wrapped, it will lead you automatically to the excellent choice, which will then lead you to a life that is pure and blameless. A life that will bring glory to God, full of the fruit of righteousness. I loved Bruce's video. I mean, it was a perfect compilation of an excellent choice. He had a friend in need, and he loved his friend. He had the knowledge of Christ, that Christ came to seek and to save those who were lost. And then he had the wisdom. How do I do this? How do I seek and save, find his life? Okay, I'll buy a plane ticket. And I'm going to give up some days at the office. And I'm going to go down and love him. And the wonderful outcomes of another rescued person whom we'll see in heaven. It's a perfect picture of this. So, welcome to the world of excellent choices. Lifting you out of the drudgery and the dredges of wrong choices, average choices, these excellent choices that will give your life these blessings as you choose things based on love, the knowledge of his word, and wisdom to make them work. I'm thankful that God cares about the choices in my life. Let's pray. Just before I close in prayer, I think it would be good for us just to have some time to let the Holy Spirit speak to us, to you as an individual. All of us have bad choices that we have made. Some of us have made a lot of bad choices. We're sitting here, my life is such a mess. What can I do? wonderful thing is God's a God of second chances. As long as you have breath, you can pivot and you can embrace a life of excellent choices going forward. And I welcome you to that. Some of you are thinking maybe of major choices in your life. I pray that God will use the formula of love, knowledge, and wisdom, praying for it, seeking the counsel of others to help you make that excellent choice. Don't run ahead. Don't do it by instinct, emotion, greed, or whatever. And then some of us don't make a lot of big choices, but it's just those everyday little choices that are so determinative. We all live with that. This is a daily formula. This is a daily pattern. May God help it to be a daily habit in our lives for the glory and honor of his name.